The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. My understanding is that not a lot of people understand post-stroke fatigue. So are we mislabeling it as something else instead of calling it post-stroke fatigue? Are we saying it's more of a cognitive? Are we saying it is strictly just a muscle strength? Very basic question. I'm just wondering if we're mislabeling, especially when we talk about down the road because I'm really hung up on these individuals who are functioning well. So these are the individuals that no longer qualify for home care services and have really graduated beyond outpatient, but they're still not able to get to back to life, back to their role as as an employee, back to those desired occupations that they want to get to because of the post-stroke fatigue. This episode of Noggins and Neurons is part of our student-led series, and the topic is post-stroke fatigue. We are joined by Tracy Bentley-Roop, occupational therapist and educator, Alyssa Brockman, and Sarah Battaglia. Enjoy. My name is Alyssa Brockman. I'm an occupational therapy student in the master's program at Duville College. I currently live and I'm from Rochester, New York. 
In school right now, I'm currently working on a thesis project with another Juville student who is in the BSMS program, which is just a five-year program as compared to my three-year program. And it explores the effects of somatosensory interventions on motor control in children with cerebral palsy. I completed my field work at an outpatient pediatric center and at a hospital, both that were located in Rochester. I initially thought I really wanted to work with peds, but then I did develop such a high interest for working with older adults, especially those with stroke. I just found it to be super unique and interesting. Um, what was most exciting and rewarding with this population was just the initial impact that occupational therapists can have in the recovery process. I think that every stroke is so different and there's varying levels of impact that the stroke can have, which makes each patient so unique. I kind of felt like I got along with these types of patients because I myself, I find myself to be a very charismatic and patient person. I like to be honest with them and support them and I try to find, you know, the right way and the right tools and resources to give them. And I want to just meet their values of the patient and the families to make that strong recovery and build that rapport and trust. So that's kind of why I'm really excited to be part of this podcast and to educate everyone who's listening and learn with everyone so much more about stroke and the recovery process. Hi, my name is Sarah Battaglia. I'm an occupational therapy student currently working to be a registered occupational therapist. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I'm also working on my senior thesis right now which is looking at the effectiveness of virtual reality intervention on the performance of activities of daily living and play skills in children with cerebral palsy. I got interested in this population through working at an outpatient clinic in New York City. I saw a gap in the education and information provided to stroke patients. It seemed to me that I was providing a lot of education to stroke patients and their caregivers that I assumed they had already received from hospital staff. A lot of the patients had strokes years prior to coming to therapy, so this was a learning experience for everyone. And a lot of times it was beneficial for my clients to hear this information more than once. Just a little more information about Sarah and I. Um, We were both a little hesitant actually to be joining this podcast because we have a limited knowledge and interest in podcasts, Um, but we wanted to be able to reach people on a different platform and provide assistance and support in a more casual and convenient way. And we thought, what better way than do it than on noggins and neurons? It's a great new learning experience for everyone. I think it's it's such a great way to engage this population and get us to learn as well along with you guys. So it's very exciting to be doing this podcast with Sarah because we actually became really good friends throughout our time at Duville and we share a lot of the same similar interests in and out of school. And we both just are inspired by stroke recovery stories and we're both very passionate about occupational therapy's involvement in the recovery process to help stroke survivors and their families in just achieving independence and getting back to their daily routines. So here we go. Okay, so I, I'll jump right in and I'll start. So this is Alyssa. Yeah, so my name is Alyssa. And I'll just kind of give like a brief overview of kind of what we're going to talk about today. So our episode is going to generalize information pertaining to post-stroke fatigue. We do want to make it very clear that the information that we are going to share 
which is going to be the symptoms, timeline, occupational impacts, and recovery. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution to managing post-stroke fatigue, but rather it's just a summary of our experiences and the literature that we found to address and inform everyone on post-stroke fatigue. So our goal is really to just provide any of the listeners who have experienced post-stroke fatigue with education and information that may have gotten forgotten or left out during um, the rehabilitation phases and just give them tools to help cope and realize that they're not alone in this experience by any means. That sounds good. Alyssa, did you tell me that you worked with somebody who had post-stroke fatigue on your field work? Yeah, so my field work was at a hospital in Rochester, at Rochester General Hospital. So I was on the SICU and the ICU units. I wasn't necessarily right on the stroke unit. So I just saw the very early, early stages of stroke. Um, I was very fortunate to kind of follow a couple people throughout the acute phase. And the biggest thing that I noticed fatigue wise was more the cognitive aspect because we were still working on bed mobility and just getting that occupational profile, that background information on the patient and just even coming up with their own personal information was very um, like time consuming for them. It was very difficult for them to think of what they want to say. Um, And I don't think necessarily they would think of that as fatigue, but they are kind of straining their brains to come up with this information because it's just almost new to them. So that's kind of the effect that I saw. Being tired after a person has a stroke is very common anyways. So in that acute phase, it's common for people to be more more tired than just feeling fatigued, like sleepy. They sleep a lot right after they have a stroke. Um, That's pretty common for a person to do that. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Sarah, did you, I'm sorry, I forgot where you did your field work. Yeah. So um, I did my field work in a hand therapy clinic in New York City. So it, but it was outpatient kind of more broadly. Like we had stroke, we had hand, we had spinal cord injury, acquired brain injury. We had a lot of different diagnoses and that's where I saw stroke in a little bit of a different lens than where Alyssa saw it. So she saw it in that really acute phase. So right after the incident happened, she saw the patients and was treating them. And then I would see them either after they were discharged from the hospital and it was safe for them to go home and continue rehabilitation in outpatient. And then I saw it years and years later, like I had some patients that were two to three to even five to six or seven years post-stroke. So they were just having therapy kind of to fine tune deficits that they had. If they had a little bit of um, weakness, a little bit of less range of motion than they would like. Like it was very specific to what they wanted to work on, which I thought was very fun for me because it was more what they wanted to work on. So 
I had more range of what I could do with them. It wasn't so acute and I don't want to say serious, but it wasn't so formal. Did you see anybody who was complaining of fatigue or was it more motor function problems that they were having? Yeah. So I did see the fatigue lasting that long, like two to three years after the stroke, but it was more so it was more of a mental fatigue. Like they were dealing, they're dealing with a lot and it's a long recovery process. And it was also some physical deconditioning as well that they were experiencing. So Alyssa was seeing more of the cognitive fatigue. And I would say I was seeing more of the mental fatigue and people working for people working so hard for so long in the recovery process that was kind of taking a toll on them. So where do we want to go from here? I think I would like to know how many individuals who have experienced a stroke suffer from post-stroke fatigue. Yeah, so based on kind of our literature review, we came across that post-stroke fatigue is a very lack of research in this area, just because fatigue is such a subjective topic. Um, but we did find that most of the literature says that up to 50% of post-stroke patients report feeling fatigue as one of their worst symptoms. And then the prevalence ranges anywhere from 25 to 85% and the incidence rate of 39 to 72%. And again, those ranges are so wide because fatigue is so multifactorial and there's different things that can influence fatigue, such as what time of the day you're asking the patient if they feel fatigued, as well as other personal characteristics, whether it's cultural or psychosocial, that really kind of impact the data. Something that I read in one of the articles that you sent me is that, I hope I can remember what I wanted to say. Oh, the, the measurement tools that they used were not consistent across studies, which is common in research and not all of the measurement tools that they use even address fatigue related to stroke. I, th I thought that was interesting. And it goes off what you were saying. It was called that it says that the post-stroke fatigue researchers and clinicians use a variety of patient-reported outcome measures known as PROMS. Not to be confused with passive range of motion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but none of these measurements are necessarily specific to stroke. It's just a general evaluation mm -hmm. method. Yes. And that one article that I don't know exactly which one it is right now, but the one that had the, the circle graph with all of the different subcategories in it, like there's a lot to think about and a lot that people complain of and a lot that can be looked at. Let me see if I can find that one. Yeah, that was the that article was from the journal of psychomatic research. It was called lack of content overlap in essential dimensions, a review of measures used for post-stroke fatigue. I actually really, really did like this article because it gave a brief definition of post-stroke fatigue 
being described as a feeling of physical or mental exhaustion, which may develop in connection with routine activities following acute stroke. And yes, it did have that circular graph. And basically what that was, to my understanding, it was a breakdown of the different domains that were found through those PROMS. So they asked a bunch of participants, you know, what are you seeing that relates to stroke and fatigue? And they found that there was four dimensions, each having subdimensions that were specific to fatigue and stroke. So the four were labeled as characteristic, severity, interference, and management. And it went into each of those and gave examples of what falls under what. And it came to be that the, the characteristics and interference, I believe, were the two dimensions that people talked most about. So on that graph, it says characteristics of could be fatigue, being worn out, being sleepy, um, your physical items, which were, is your body able to keep up, the physical capacity, physical condition, and then the mental capacity, like thinking and memory and concentration. Whereas interference was more so behavioral and physical. And that was, so for behavioral, it was how much are you getting done? Does it affect sleep and rest? Does it limit your abilities? And then the physical is how much is my physical fatigue impacting my daily activities? So it's really talking about the impact on occupational performance, even though they're not using that language. That's one of the things that I always think about with, in respect to the, the research that we look at. So we, they're trying to understand what it is while we are trying to understand how to help a person navigate life with something like this and to feel better too. So one of the things that I noticed when they talked about was developing coping strategies, which I'm not sure we want to go here right now, but you know, beyond coping, people want to feel good. And when you're fatigued, which to me is different than being tired, you know, fatigued is like that always feeling tired, never feeling like you have any zip to yourself. It's hard to be motivated when you feel that way. Yeah. And that was one of the things that we came across where, you know, what is the difference between post-stroke fatigue and regular fatigue? And what we found was that with your regular fatigue, when you're feeling tired, you can take a rest or a nap, have a good night's sleep, and you wake up feeling rejuvenated and ready to go. Whereas post-stroke fatigue, you feel that same feelings, but when you take a nap or you get a good night's sleep, you still might wake up feeling the exact same way. And that's when you're like, well, why am I feeling so tired when I just took a nap? And it's basically because while you are still sleeping, your brain is working so hard to recover and rebuild all the neural connections and it's working really hard while it's sleeping, whereas when you're just generally fatigued, 
your brain's almost on that shutoff mode. And that's why you kind of feel rejuvenated after. Yeah. I just wanted to add on to what um, Alyssa said about, I think that the hardest part of this is something that I experienced a lot when I was treating stroke patients was the mental fatigue. Because when we talk about post-stroke fatigue, we're talking about physical and mental and that cognitive aspect. So the mental fatigue really plays a role in it as well as in the longer it goes on, I feel like the more hard it is to overcome. And that's kind of something that I wanted to touch on for in terms of when we talk about post-stroke fatigue, there's, you could either be talking about acute fatigue, which would be that rapid onset right after stroke, the stuff that Alyssa was treating in the hospital. So it's a short duration and it's really mostly affecting those cognitively cognitive tasks that you need. And it kind of means it's lasting up to six months, we say for acute fatigue. And then when we say chronic fatigue, it's more the late phase of stroke. So after six months and on, and it could be years and years of that, it could be forever. Um, and that kind of, along with that fatigue comes that lack of interest or a poor motivation. And that's actually reported in 40% of survivors that chronic post-stroke fatigue. That's very debilitating. That's interesting. I remember reading that some of those studies did not determine if people experienced a level of fatigue before they had a stroke. And that to me would be curious to know, you know, if people experienced that, like that chronic fatigue, or they, they had consistent complaints of tiredness before they had a stroke, or if they were very active and invigorated before, and then now this is something they have to deal with afterwards. I think it's really a mix of both. I think it's, if you had fatigue before, prior to your stroke, and you have it after, it's kind of going to affect it in a different way as if you didn't, which it's kind of going to be like a new thing for you to be dealing with. But I think that some of the studies was saying that if you had fatigue or any sort of affective or uh, something like a fatigue disorder or a chronic fatigue prior to the stroke, I think that was a factor. I don't think they found anything that actually correlated the two, but I know they were somewhat associated with each other. Interesting. So when we talk about something that's more effective, can we talk a little bit about that? Just because not everybody who listens to the podcast might understand what we're talking about. So I'm going to jump right in here and just say like a quick, a quick phrase about affect and how stroke impacts the brain. So a lot of times I think when we think about stroke, it's more speech or like a motor impairment, but stroke affects the brain in ways because the brain controls our behavior and the brain controls our emotions. So when you think about stroke, you're not thinking just like the motor or sensory impairments. You're also thinking how it changes depending on where you have the stroke, the parts of your brain that control your emotions. So if you or a loved one, or if you're a clinician and a patient you have is having a stroke and recovering from it, they're going to, they might feel irritability. They might feel 
confuse carelessness, confusion, anger, anxiety, depression, fatigue, obviously, there's a whole bunch of things that they could feel. And it's because that, that part of their brain might be a part that's damaged from the lack of blood flow. It might be a part that's dying and it's the neurons are trying to reconnect in a different way. So it's, I think sometimes forgotten about that, how much stroke will affect your emotions and also not just where you had the stroke, also the just uprooting of your life after it happens, I think affects your mood too. Yeah, it's a life altering event. I think that's helpful uh, sometimes for caregivers to be reminded, like we need to remind ourselves sometimes that when people seem different after they experience a stroke, it's because they, they might be different, but it's, I don't think that most people behave differently on purpose. I think it's just a result of the experience that they're going through or the brain changes as well. I was curious, um, you guys were talking about the effects of fatigue on occupational performance. I had a bit of an aha moment here. We always speak about higher cognitive abilities post-stroke and how individuals go through the rehab phases and they go home, but they never return to activities such as work. Did you find any information that specifically spoke to post-stroke fatigue and work? Because oftentimes we say higher cognitive deficits. I'm wondering if some of it could be more post-stroke fatigue and not necessarily a cognitive issue. I can touch on it. I can touch on it a little bit. I didn't necessarily find a connection between fatigue and work. And Sarah, jump in if you did. But I did do an interview with a woman who she had her stroke. It was 14 years ago. And she was 58 when she had it. And she was a school teacher. And she was talking about how her stroke affected mainly her language. So her physical functions were all intact, but the language and the processing was delayed and she had to work really hard. She was actually in speech therapy for 16 months doing listening, speaking, comprehending, reading, and just understanding how to communicate. Cause again, she was a school teacher and, you know, she felt so fatigued mentally and cognitively because she had to find the right words to teach and that was still very hard for her she said you know sometimes she had to quote unquote dumb down the words because she couldn't think of that correct word and her actual line was she was like I really wanted to get an IEP or an individual education plan for myself because I needed someone to be my secretary for paperwork and to help increase the time needed to finish my ideas during school. So that kind of was like, wow, where is that kind of lying in the transition from rehab to work in that aspect? How are we gonna help school teachers or business people who have that effect of fatigue to still continue their job? Sounds like a great emerging practice. Sure does. So she did return to teaching? I know she retired early because it was just beginning to be too much for her. And she wasn't, you know, teaching up to her expectations per se. Yeah. You know, I'm not actually sure, you know, how long after 
her stroke, she went back to work and how long she stayed there. She just really emphasized, you know, the need for that transitional care and how she didn't have it. And we were also like, okay, well, it was also 14 years ago. Maybe things have changed. So I was thinking back to my own personal experiences at the hospital. And, um, you know, you do see that there is a lack of transitional care. And I'm almost thinking, you know, is it because us as practitioners were vocalizing and we're explaining and discussing all, all of this information to the patients and the caregivers and through the interdisciplinary team but is there a hard copy being given to the patients and to the caregivers for them to refer back to? Or is there a website with all of these tools for them to refer back to because they're given so much information and they're kind of just almost picking and choosing what is most important to them for the here and now rather than the long term. And I think that is something that us as practitioners need to address is just giving other forms of information especially hard copies, because sometimes that might be easier for caregivers and patients to refer back to. It's an interesting point you make, Alyssa, because oftentimes we're providing all of this education during the acute phase. And then yes, in post-acute care, but my question, especially not necessarily my question, I guess my comment is again, Sarah was talking about individuals that she was seeing in an outpatient setting beyond post-acute care. So when I say post-acute, I'm speaking of subacute rehab, inpatient rehab facility, home care. Um, so beyond that fine tuning that Sarah was talking about. So it almost sounds like that's a, an area of need for that fine tuning, maybe specifically because of post-stroke or post, yeah, blah, blah, blah. help me. Post-stroke fatigue. Thank you. Post-stroke fatigue for post-stroke fatigue, mm -hmm. that maybe there's a something that we could be doing in an acute phase and literally like this is for later. Yes. Because I think what happens is that they sort of graduate from each level of care across the continuum. But again, where does it go and where does it, you know, where does it stop and who's responsible for providing this type of information? Because my understanding is that not a lot of people understand post-stroke fatigue. So are we mislabeling it as something else instead of calling it post-stroke fatigue? Are we saying it's more of a cognitive? Are we saying it is true, strictly just a muscle strength? Very basic question. I'm just wondering if we're mislabeling, especially when we talk about down the road because I'm really hung up on these individuals who are functioning well. So these are the individuals that no longer qualify for home care services and have really graduated beyond outpatient, but they're still not able to get to back to life, back to their role as, a, as an employee, back to those desired occupations that they wanna to get to because of the post-stroke fatigue and their manifestation of their post-stroke fatigue. Because I think that's another important part to keep in mind is that it's different for other people. And as we've noted in the earlier discussion, talking about the PROMs, I mean, 
no one's using the same language when we discuss their post-stroke fatigue. So it's sort of the unknown factor when we're working with individuals. Tracy, I think you bring up a very good point. And I will hold my thought. Go ahead, Sarah. No, I was just going to agree with Tracy and the fact that we might be mislabeling it because speaking from a personal perspective, when I was completing my field work and treating stroke patients, post-stroke fatigue was not something that was at the forefront of my mind. It, it did go more to the clinical or the cognitive dysfunction aspect, like maybe, or more of like, um, physical. So a vision deficit or aphasia, or I remember one patient I had, he was struggling to talk, not so much struggling to find words, but just to get them out. And I remember my coworkers and I, or the fellow students I was working with jump immediately to, he has expressive aphasia. He doesn't know how to express his thoughts. And I'm thinking to myself, if we just give him some time, wait and see, like he might just be fatigued. He might just be really unmotivated to be at therapy today. Like it kind of made me step back and realize we just totally kind of thought he he had some certain diagnosis when really he probably might've just been fatigued or might've just been not being able to get the word out. So I feel like as clinicians, practicing in whatever setting we're practicing in, it's important to remember the not so talked about symptoms like post-stroke fatigue because it's ongoing and it's multidimensional. Well, and how often do we as clinicians get so ingrained in in finding a problem? Like that's really where our culture is right now. Everybody's looking for a problem. And Okay, so this person is having a manifestation of something, but why, why don't we, what's the right way to say this? Maybe I need to step back. So looking for a problem and being in a hurry. So we're rushed and we want to, you know, hurry up and pull this out of them and figure out what's wrong with them. And, but we do all of that. Are we really treating it? is kind of where I'm going here. So I love that you said that you just took a step back and you were thinking about what really might be going on with that person. I think looking back now, after preparing for this podcast and reviewing the literature we found on this phenomenon after stroke and the symptom, I think that probably a hundred percent of my patients, whether they were six months out from their stroke or two years out from their stroke, I think that the way they presented at therapy could have all could have been related to this particular symptom of post-stroke fatigue, just either physical deconditioning, mental or cognitive. I think that everyone kind of showed a certain presentation and I don't think, I don't think in school we talked about how prevalent it is in the stroke community. We talked about it. We obviously know, know about it, but we didn't talk about how truly prevalent, like almost like Alyssa said, over half of the patients said it was their worst symptom. And here I was in this outpatient clinic and I wasn't thinking of treating that or talking about it at all. 
with my patients. Yeah. I have stayed in touch with a couple of people that I've worked with over the years who've had stroke. And many years later, one of them said to me that they still don't feel like themselves. You know, they're functioning, but they still don't feel like themselves. And I just wonder if it's the fatigue factor that plays a role in that. Because if you don't, if you don't feel mentally sharp and clear, it affects how you feel about yourself as a person. Affects your participation in activities. Mm-hmm. You start to socially isolate. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes this whole cyclical thing where if maybe we could target that, especially from Sarah's perspective at the outpatient land, those chronic fatigue conditions and acknowledge how they truly affect both the, the mental and the emotional side of it, that that could be an area that we should be really focusing on for outpatient OT as well. Can we circle back to what you guys were talking about with the education piece of this and how Tracy, you were saying that a lot of education is done during the acute phase and that's getting faster because they're trying to move people through a system more quickly. People want to get home. I, I don't know about you, but when I'm learning something new, I learn it better when I learn it over time. So the first time I hear something, I might never remember that I heard that. And that's just me as a person. I've always been that way. So I feel like as occupational therapy practitioners, we can build that into our interventions. So if we know if we're working in acute care and we give caregivers information. We give them hard copies. We tell them like Tracy, like you were saying, this is for later because you go home. You're just happy to get home. I can, I know what I would do. I would just take my papers, put them on the table and find my comfortable spot that I wanted to be in. I don't know if I would remember to pick those papers up again. You know, like you have medications that you're supposed to be taking. You have to make sure that you get those. But I don't know that I would pick up my papers and go through those again. So wouldn't it be nice if somebody actually called and checked up on you? You've been home for a couple of days. How are things going? Have you had a chance to look at that information that I gave you? You know, maybe the home care person could come over and go through the papers with people and come up with a plan for addressing the post-stroke fatigue, addressing whatever, so that it's a layered approach so that they understand what's happened with them. Or I'm just really thinking about how we could, we could really target those individuals who would be going back to their neurology appointments. So they would be going to their follow-up appointments, possibly providing some sort of information session in a group format on a day, like one in the morning at like 10 o'clock and then one in the afternoon at two o'clock and just stagger it out throughout the month or so for a specific neurology group. So are you suggesting that we partner with 
a neurology group, the neurologist, because I do think I remember reading in the notes that Alyssa and Sarah gave us that doctors don't even always know about post-stroke fatigue. That would be an excellent way to take that education and provide it at a time when the individuals are more readily available to actually participate in the education process. And the caregivers as well, because really the caregivers are gonna be getting those folks to those neurology appointments. Yes, I think the caregivers would be a big, a big aspect to this ongoing education and this ongoing treatment or management of post-stroke fatigue because ultimately the caregivers yeah going to be the one that's socially supporting them and physically supporting them throughout the course of the recovery. So if they can get on board with that post-stroke fatigue, know the management, know the signs and the symptoms, I think it will be really helpful to carry this part of the recovery process throughout the rest of their lives because it is a lifelong learning process. In this one article, it was a qualitative article in 2021, and it actually talks about how several clinicians felt that referrals for fatigue management led to empowerment of patients. So basically saying, you know, when practitioners give that interest into someone specifically, so for us post-stroke fatigue, if we do give them a reminder and give them referrals on where to go and continually touch base with them, it almost increases their interest and empowerment to feel like they can handle this and there are tools out there. And then they're going to kind of research for themselves, the caregiver, so to speak, is going to research for themselves to figure out a way to manage fatigue that is best suitable for them because it is so different for everyone. And I think that's why the scientific evidence, there's only a small number of trials and it's just targeting certain specific coping strategies or certain specific fatigue symptoms. And us as practitioners kind of have to advocate and all work together to find what fits specifically for that patient and that caregiver. That sounds amazing. Are you referring to the article that talked about the the group interventions. It was um, the post-stroke fatigue, a review on prevalence, correlates, measurement, and management. Is is that the one that you're talking about? I'm reading from the article title is Managing Post-Stroke Fatigue, a Qualitative Study to Explore hmm. Multifaceted Clinical Perspective. Okay. That kind of ties into this article that I'm referring to, two separate researchers found that fatigue management groups are effective for helping people to overcome fatigue or deal with it and actually start to feel better. So talking about educating on what the fatigue is, giving them some fatigue management strategies, talking about sleep hygiene, relaxation, exercise, nutrition and mood. And there's something about the group process for that, where people start to take a little bit more accountability for themselves and 
I almost wonder if when people are engaging in group activities and, and somebody starts to feel better, if it's like a, a it spreads a through the snowball. Group. Yeah. A snowball. Mm-hmm. It's people, you get to see that you're not alone and you have that social support from someone who really understands what's actually going on. So, you know, if I feel a certain way and you don't necessarily understand how I feel, but Sarah has the same symptoms, it's kind of easier for us to connect. And I feel a sense of security and acceptance in myself and together we can move forward and just having that peer support, I think really is influential to a successful recovery and getting to the point where you want to be at. Yeah. Peer support and maybe even accountability. There seems to be sometimes in groups an unspoken accountability piece where you want to show up well in front of your peers. I think that I can relate, not the article that you were talking about, Deb, but related to Alyssa's, I was looking at an article that looked at reestablishing occupational identity after a stroke. And that has a big chunk of it regarding connecting with others and social support. So they found that the central process of adjustment for the participants, they were all chronic stroke. So it was past six months, I believe, or three to six months. They found that reconstruction of that occupational identity was achieved through resuming those daily occupations, but also connections with others and connections with reality and connections with yourself. So they broke it down even further into connecting with yourself, which involved in managing your own emotions, which is a big learning curve after a stroke motivation, which is huge with people that are having post-stroke fatigue and those kinds of symptoms, confidence, occupational management, and then seizing control. So that aggressive, aggressive style of coping, I guess I would say. So that was really talking about yourself. And then they moved on to talk about connecting with others, which included being understood by others, a sense of belonging, receiving help from others, and then just social interactions in general. And then the third one they were talking about was connecting with reality, which meant kind of like confronting how your stroke's impacting your daily life and how your life's unfolding now after your stroke and then how it was before. So your past reality, the reality of the stroke happening and then your future and what that's going to look like. But the whole common overarching theme out of that whole article I found was that reestablishing an occupational identity was a desire to help or contribute to others and connecting with others. So that was the biggest piece of it, I think, was just connecting with others. And the examples they gave was either you could form a support group, you could join a support, a support group, you could donate things you've made, you can volunteer at a animal shelter. Those are just random examples. But I think that whole article was trying to say there's so many pieces, but that connecting with others is a huge piece to your occupational identity, which I think we forget. I think we think of it as going to work, activities of daily living and things like that. But I think that the social participation is a huge aspect to think about when we're thinking about post-stroke fatigue. Yeah. And what I heard you say is finding meaning and purpose in life. 
because if you're making things, well, you're, you're using your hands. And then that always makes me think of my favorite quote. Man through the use of his hands as he's energized by mind and will. Could influence the state of his own health, but who memorized that? Yes, we did. Um, but it really, it's so true though, because when you're, you don't have to do a craft, but if you have a hobby, if you, if you can do something and you're actually using your hands to do it and you're being creative, I think there's something that happens when you engage in the creative process, you feel good. And then if you have someone to give something to, like all of a sudden there's some, there's a purpose behind what you did and somebody may enjoy that. And I just think that maybe in our culture, we don't value some things like that, but it's never too late. If, if, even if you've been a person who's never done anything like that, you can always learn something new. Yeah, I agree. I think that we can also take this into being therapists so not only social support in a, the form of a group, but social support in as clinicians. So I think that when I was listening to the clinical confidence podcast you had with Andrea, she said building bonds with people through showing that you're there for them and that they can op- open up to you can serve as a form of therapy aside from the modalities and aside from the interventions or aside from the interventions yes so those relationships are therapeutic and those relationships you might have with your patient might make or break the therapy sessions and might set up the future of those therapy sessions and the success of them I also think it's key what you guys are speaking of both um, to what Sarah just said and to what Deb was saying in regards to being active and involved in activities So when you're working with caregivers, they need to understand the importance of engaging and having their loved one actually participating and engaging in the day-to-day things that are happening in that house. Not always the direct recipient of care, but participating. So that will address the social as well. But again, working towards meaning and purpose and having that individual re-engage in life. So maybe we won't, we can stave off a little bit of that social isolation if we're getting them involved in activities and we're bringing them out in the community when at all possible. So they can go back to those very important, valuable roles that that you identified, Sarah, in the article you were reviewing that have been lost. And I also kind of think almost taking a step backwards that finding that purpose comes from not only acceptance of our symptoms after stroke and having the stroke, but also the understanding of why is this impacting us? How is it impacting us? Are there patterns per se that are triggers for our fatigue? And if we can better understand our own personal patterns that influence fatigue, then maybe I can find that right hands-on activity or a purpose that can I don't know what to say, almost better alleviate that fatigue and put meaning into it. Are we speaking about activity analysis? Sounds like it. We might be. That's a favorite thing that OTs like to do. That's for sure. Alyssa, that's an excellent point because in regards to the caregivers and having them really understand. So 
oftentimes I've heard it over my years of, I just do it for him or I just do it for her because it's easier. And having caregivers understand that ways to address things such as post-stroke fatigue is having them engage in activities and selecting the correct activity based on how they're presenting that day. So can we speak a little bit to that, Alyssa? You alluded to it. Um, Tracy, Tracy, can you repeat what you just said? You are speaking about how it presents, the manifestations of post-stroke fatigue and understanding how they present and meeting and matching the activities to that current ability level, for lack of a better description of it. Can you guys speak to that a little bit? Maybe I was saying activity analysis, but what would the caregivers need to understand when you talk about maybe the different types of post-stroke fatigue or where they are across the recovery continuum? Those types of information that you would want to, if you were gonna give a snippet of information to someone's spouse as they were leaving the, the acute care setting, what would you wanna tell them? I would probably want to tell them that it's going to be a flexible and patient journey. I mean, each day is going to present itself so differently and one day might be better than the next, but that doesn't mean that they're regressing. It just means that they're, they're getting better or they're, they found something that they can work on and over time, it's going to be very up and down, but at the end, it's going to all kind of be worth it because you're going to realize where your strengths are, where the weaknesses are. And if you have a solid caregiver and a solid interdisciplinary team, it's going to work itself out is kind of what I would say. And I think it's just knowing that it's a stroke is not a constant uphill battle. It's just very differing like climbing a mountain you don't go straight up mm -hmm. yeah this concludes part one of our talk on post-stroke fatigue if you like what you're hearing so far stay tuned for part two where we continue our conversation if you would like to donate to the noggins and neurons podcast you can do so using the paypal link in the show notes or through a donation to get your all-star peak trading card. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons, at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.